Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. It is my humble honor and sincere and extraordinary privilege to be in dialogue today with Dr. Sandra Ott. She is Professor of Basque Studies at the Center for Basque Studies at the University of Nevada, Reno. We are here today to discuss her book, Judgment and Memory in the Basque Borderlands, 1914 to 1945, published by University of Nevada Press, 2008. Sandra, thank you for your time. I'm tremendously thankful. Thank you so much, Ari, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? I grew up in a very small town in northwestern Pennsylvania uh, that had a junior, senior high school combined. And I grew up in a, a family in which my parents always encouraged us to read books and to love words and to explore the world. And I was very fortunate in, in that respect. And I, I, when I was about nine years old, my mother uh, found me in uh, the study and I was looking at her books, which at that time were all hardcover and no paperbacks. And she had studied philosophy. And at age nine, I, I had my own books and I was embarrassed that I was looking at her books. And she said, no, 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 that's fine. Look at look at, look at at my books and let's take one out. And she took out a book and it was a philosophy text. And she said, I want you to feel the pages and let's uh, and sniff the book. She said, smell the book. And she said, I want you to pick a book uh, from my library. Uh, and I said, I wouldn't understand a word. I'm only nine. And she said, that's okay. You just choose a book. And then you keep it by your bedside until it's ready. You're ready to read it. Um, and that's what I did. And the book I chose was Eliot's, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And I think it's the first time I saw poetry. Um, and uh, that was a very formative experience for me in terms of my longstanding love of books and words and writing. And I think I then decided I was going to be a poet. <laughs> Um, and uh, then it moved to English literature. That was my first degree. And when I was 19, I went to the Outer Hebrides of Scotland by myself as a study abroad student. And uh, that was really a changing point for me to live in a different culture, to be in such a, 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 in a different place. And that sparked my interest in social anthropology. So I went on to become a social anthropologist. I did all my studies in, in Great Britain. So those were those were key, key moments for me. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope readers will take away from it? I was inspired to write this book because I had been out of academia for a lengthy period of time in university administration, and I had kept in touch with the, the Basque people of this part of the French Basque country. And in returning to academia, I wanted, I realized how little I knew about their experiences during the, the German occupation in the Second World War. And so it was a gap in my knowledge and a longing to understand what these people whom I'd known for some 20 years had gone through. And that, that really inspired it. I was also inspired, Ari, by the fact that my father 
uh, had had served in France in the in the U.S. Army at the very end of the German occupation, and so there was a family interest in uh, trying to understand uh, the experience of foreign occupation and uh, particularly uh, under Nazi Germany. Uh, and I had a long-standing love of, of of France and certainly of the Basque Country. So what I wanted to do in in choosing this topic uh, was to combine my 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 experience as a social anthropologist over many many decades and my newfound interest in history. And I could combine work in the archives uh, in southwestern France with my long standing fieldwork experience with people who directly uh, were part of the German occupation. So it was a combination of those factors motivated me to, to do this. I originally thought that the book would be much more about the, the experience of French and foreign Jews in that part of Southwestern France, but it ended up being much more focused on the experiences of individual Basque communities and people who engaged in the resistance um, so that one never knows exactly when you start the research where it's going to end up. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Uh, the primary theme is uh, an exploration of the very different experiences that Basque people had in four small rural communities and their response to German occupation and their responses to one another. Uh, the experience of war and foreign occupation causes people they cause it caused people to to behave in ways they wouldn't normally behave and so I wanted to capture at grassroots level the the texture of everyday life under occupation uh, and really wanted to convey that very personal experience that that people had. And that's where the advantage comes in of having done a lot of field work there as an anthropologist. I knew people uh, very well, a wide range of people. And when I began this research, uh, I was a known entity and I spoke Basque and French and they had a chance to read my first book, which had been published by Oxford University Press in the 80s. And I'd also made a, a film about one particular Basque community, which they saw, and they still they still watch it every every couple of years. It's shown in local movie theaters, um, and so I was really trying to tell their story. And when it was two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four, two thousand five, that generation of people who had direct experience of the German occupation were starting to die off. So I was really also an urgency had an urgency in wanting to record their experiences in 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 the form of a book. Can you tell us about some of the survivors that you personally know or personally met uh, in the course of your research? Yes, I met, uh, I, I, I hadn't realized in the 1970s when I first did my field work, how many, what kinds of experiences people had had during the war. And uh, in my own my own household, which I feel like an adopted member of that family. I've known them since 1976. And it was it was not until 2002 that I realized that this particular farmhouse had been a safe house for Jews who were trying to get over the Pyrenees into Spain. And the grandfather of the house, who was by then in his 80s, 
uh, told me as a child his his memories from childhood of 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 Jewish people coming to the back door and asking to be hidden while they waited for a Basque guide to take them over the Pyrenees. And I said to him, you, you never, I've known you most of my life and you never told me any of these things. And he said, but you never asked. <laughs> um, other people, maybe we'll talk about in due course, but other people whom I got to know included uh, a woman who features in the book, Madame Davancens, who was in her eighties by the time I met her. And she had survived the Nazi camp, concentration camp for women at, at Ravensbrück. And uh, I spent an afternoon with her and it was, it was a great privilege to listen to someone who had, they were terrible experiences, but her courage and her dignity were so extremely striking. And that is a, a lost generation. I, we don't too often see people with that kind of dignity and courage in, in, in our own time. Where is Shiberoa located? Can you describe its geography and demography? Can you give us some sort of introductory lesson in geography so that we can understand Basque culture and so that we can contextualize the events you present in the book? Yes, the Chiboroa is one of three Northern or French Basque provinces. Uh, it's located in Southwestern France. Uh, people will be most familiar with the French Basque coastal communities of Biarritz and perhaps Bayonne. And Chiboroa is the innermost, easternmost of the three French Basque provinces. And it's in the highest part of the, of the lower Pyrenees. Uh, and so it's very, mountain, very mountainous, very rural. Uh, and it straddles the, the French-Spanish border. And so its geographical location make, make, makes it a particularly unusual region to study during uh, 20th century war uh, because there was a, an exodus of, of Spanish uh, Republicans during the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 1939 into that part of France of several half a million Spanish Republicans flooded into France. And then of course, when Hitler invaded uh, the Low Countries and then France in 1940, there was an exodus of many nationalities to that part of Southwestern France. So it's a very a very interesting location as a borderland uh, region. And it's also interesting, its it, geographical position is important uh, as well as its cultural uh, identity because it is a very multicultural, it was a very multicultural region during the war uh, with mainly Basques and people from the adjacent province of, of Bern. Uh, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting cultural mix and very much unlike other parts of, of France. What does your book contribute to Basque history and Basque studies? Very little has had has been written about the experience of, of French Basques, either in the First World War or the Second World War. There are a couple of, of uh, local studies that were have been written in French, but my work is really the, the first of its kind uh, in Basque and French uh, historical studies uh, about this particular region. And so I think it has, uh, it has a small place in the historiography in as much as uh, there's really very little else 
uh, about this area uh, during those those tumultuous times. So I think that's its, its chief contribution. And I think its, it's contribution also is, is a result of the combination of, uh, of ethnographic work and archival research as an historian at a micro-historical level. And, and no one else has done that. So I think that's my small, my modest contribution. How does you, your book advance our understanding of Vichy France? What would a scholar specializing in Vichy France learn from your book that would be surprising and novel? Uh, I think that the most surprising aspects of this book, uh, again, relate to the, the combination of, of ethnography and archival work. And no other studies of this period in France, to my knowledge, either in French or English or other languages, really capture the, the kind of uh, the local responses to the Germans and then the extent to which the German occupation divided communities. And I think one of the most surprising things for other scholars has been the duration of animosities that grew out of the German occupation among local people. And, you know, one normally thinks of uh, the German occupation as being local people, whether Basque or French, versus the enemy, who is German. And I think one of the surprising discoveries was that, uh, yes, people regarded the Germans as the enemy, but the German presence exacerbated already existing tensions between people in the same town or village. And those animosities between local people had an incredible longevity. And I I, th I was surprised by that because in the early part of the 21st century, when I did my field work for this book, I discovered that in some communities, people still refuse to talk to their adversaries and they were all elderly at the end, toward the end of their lives, and they had persuaded family members never to go into a particular pharmacy or a particular butcher shop because they had been enemies during the German occupation. Uh, and this manifested itself most clearly in the 40th anniversary, 60th anniversary of, of the liberation, when people still avoided ceremonies if they were on opposing factions. And those factions, I should add, related to uh, people's divided loyalties to different local resistance groups. So I think that was the most, the, the longevity of those animosities is one of the most surprising discoveries I made and that other scholars find uh, unusual. How did World War I impact the Basque community? What were the social, political, and economic consequences of the First World War for Basques in Spain and Basques in France? Yeah, the, fir the First World War certainly gave rise to a lot of change in the French Basque country. Uh, Basque men were conscripted into the French army at that in 1914. Very many of them, who were farmers and shepherds, didn't speak French fluently, had little understanding of other parts of France or the world, uh, unless they had emigrated to the Americas. Uh, and so in serving in the French army, Basque, French Basque men uh, learned French, 
And that was, as you can imagine, you don't want to be in a in a, a battalion in which your commanding officer speaks French and you don't understand it. Uh, and so the experience had a, a major cultural effect on Basque communities uh, because with those who survived the war brought back with them a, a very different understanding of, of France and also the world around them. And the second major impact, of course, was demographic, and that applied to all of France. If you travel in France, one is struck by the, the presence of, of a monument to those who perished in the First World War in every community in France. And so the death toll was, was high in the Basque country. And so the demographic uh, change was also profound with tiny, you know, tiny communities having lost all, if not most of their male population and that affected marriage patterns and 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 the, the the birth rate, and so those were demographic and cultural changes were the the, the primary impact. Uh, but again, because of the geographical location of of the French Basque Country, the the First World War was also uh, gave rise to an exodus of Basque men who did not want to serve France, uh, and because of their long-standing Trans-Pyrenean relations with Basques on the other side of the border, many of them uh, hid in the Spanish Basque provinces uh, for the duration of the war or emigrated to the Americas to e evade uh, military conscription. And as you can imagine, that that it immensely frustrated the French authorities. And the Basques had done that in the past as well. It wasn't the first time that they they evaded military service. What kinds of moral conflicts does your book presents and examine. As you can you can imagine that in any study of, of foreign occupation and war, one is going to come across moral conflicts. And certainly this uh this applied to my field work uh as a scholar, an anthropologist and a, and an ethno-historian, I had moral obligations to protect the identities of people whose whose stories were not happy and whose stories involved treachery and and betrayal. Uh, and so one moral conflict was sometimes having, knowing things that were very, very delicate in terms of uh, uh, how, how I conveyed them at the same time being uh, a, a thorough and, 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 and good scholar and also protecting identities. Um, the moral conflicts that emerged from both the archival and anthropological research uh, also very much involved the people who experienced uh, the German occupation and, and war. And they, as the book explains, in some communities, uh, the entire community was torn apart by acts of denunciation, local betrayals, people, uh, ratting to the Germans or to the Vichy police about uh, men or women who who were in the resistance or who were listening to the BBC, who were anti-German. Uh, and denunciation is a, is a very uh, destructive weapon in any, any, particularly in a small rural community where everybody knows everyone else. And so there, there were moral conflicts for people whom I knew quite well and in being asked questions about these difficult times, 
they they were morally conflicted sometimes about whether to tell me certain things because they they'd known me for decades and they did not who wants to tell their their anthropologist about the treachery that took place you know you don't that's that's a part of your past that you you really would rather not be known or forgotten and so my research as much as it was welcomed by many people because people were dying and these were stories they wanted told but then the difficulty for them morally was uh is these stories need to be told but they're they're not uh they're not pretty some of them and i in one particular case of the local denunciation in the community i know best uh people were conflicted about whether to tell me the whole story and it it took several decades for me to piece together what happened and that was the the case of the garat family in the french in this french basque mountain community uh that uh that divided it it gave huge uh conflict to people because as a result of a, den a local denunciation two young men who were shepherds who acted as clandestine guides and, and helped Jews and allied pilots and French men escaping obligatory work service in Germany uh, across the Pyrenees. And uh, two of the young men, local young men were denounced, arrested by the Germans and deported and they both perished in Buchenwald. Uh, and I found out about them in 1976 when I was working in the town hall archives and I was recording births, deaths, and marriages. And I came across a note in the death ledger made by the priest. And it said in tiny handwriting, died in Buchenwald. And so my my first experience with this story goes all the way back to 1976. And it really wasn't until the 21st century that I began to uh, understand the the fuller story because people didn't want to tell me. On page four, you write the following. As I listened to first 21st century survivors of Vichy and German occupation, I was struck by the frequency with which people displayed two conflicting tendencies. The need to question the legitimacy of moral and legal judgments made more than 60 years ago and the desire to refrain from moral judgment about fellow citizens altogether. During the social process of remembering their past, informants regularly reminded themselves and me that life was not normal during the German occupation. People did things that they would never do in ordinary circumstances, and it was thus unfair to judge them. Yet, informants constantly engaged in a process of moral judgment as they talked about the dilemmas Shiberoans had faced and assessed the choices they had made. Can you say more about this? Can you elaborate? Yes, I think that 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 series of questions follows on well from what I was just talking about, that there there was this dual need to remember and a desire to forget. And that was a constant dynamic. And that dynamic existed not just between me as a researcher and the people whom I I I knew, it also existed among them. And let me give you a first example. When I was there in 1976, my purpose was very different. It was not to focus on the German occupation or war, but rather to 
to do research about a particular a conventional anthropological ethnographic study of one particular mountain community. And in the course of living there over a year and a half, the elderly people, particularly elderly women, would start talking in Basque about the dark times. And I was learning Basque, but had become fluent enough I understood and I was fully engaged in the language. And when I started to ask questions about it, they would say, oh, Sandy doesn't need to know about that. And they would change the, the focus of conversation. So that was the earliest moment of saying they wanted to remember and they knew that I was, they wanted me to know, but they didn't want me to know. And that refrain really colored uh, my experiences across the decades because I went back to that community every year and I have every year since 1976. And as people got older and were and facing the end of their lives, the the desire to remember and have have their these experiences both bad and good uh, recorded and written about it became much more uh, a focus of their of their concerns and they did say to me you know we we know that you're finding out some of the terrible things that happened but we're glad it's you because you know us we trust you and you're not french they said, we like the fact that you're a, a, a British American and we think that you are well-placed to tell our story as best as possible. This, of course, had conflicts in itself. And going back to the issue of, of moral judgment, because many people wanted me to tell their particular version of their past. And if that's not surprising in communities divided deeply by political, social, uh, economic rivalries and jealousies. And so people would press me sometimes to say, well, wait a minute, you know, you're going to tell the story, but you have to do have to tell it this way and and how we remember things. And so for me, it was imperative that I make very clear to them that my task as a as an anthropologist and a, and a historian was to take a com combinative view of all perspectives because all of those stories had a place in the in the in the overall narrative and they accepted that i mean hats off to them they they understood the the need for me to do that they weren't all pleased with the result one of the daughter of one of the leaders the regional leader of a resistance movement uh was very angry with me for my portrayal of her father, which she thought did not give him enough credit for his bravery and his his management of those difficult times. And uh, it was very hard for me because she stopped speaking to me for a year. She she did not like what I how I portrayed her her father. And you know, th th those are consequences too of the, the moral, the, the issues of judgment and, and how stories are, are conveyed. Wow, thank you for sharing that. That must have been quite something to have experienced. And she was one of my, she was very instrumental in helping me understand her father's resistance group. I mean, we, I spent a lot of time with her, so it was absolutely crushing to have her be so angry. Uh, and I had given her the manuscript. She she obviously read English, and I'd given her the manuscript 
before it was published and she never responded. And then it was published and she read it <laughs> and then said, you know, you, he, you make him, you don't give him enough space and you don't, you don't, uh, but she was very attached to her father, uh, very proud of him. And, and, but I hadn't expected that. And she, um, but in the end, in the end, I think she, and she passed away soon thereafter, which was tragic because I don't think, uh, I don't think she ever uh, forgave me and her family were so generous. They, they, they said, Sandy, you know, she, it was always going to be that way. You never would have pleased her, whatever you had written about her father. She adored him and you would never have got it right. So Gosh. I guess the, uh, that for me, the healing process was through her immediate family who said, you know, um, don't, you know, let it rest because whatever you had, you might've written would not have pleased her. <laughs> On page 182, you write the following. No resistance group ever tried to stop their deportation. Virtually no trace of the camp remains. Near its former entrance, a large commemorative sign advises passers-by that the quote-unquote former French concentration camp of Gours was located there. A short distance away, weeds grow thickly around a sentry box. A barrier straddles the dirt road which leads to a dense, damp forest planted to conceal land where rows of wooden barracks once housed the changing enemies of France before, during, and after the German occupation. Beyond the forest, a cemetery harbors the graves of more than a thousand Jews, as well as those of men who fought against Franco during the Spanish Civil War. Gours has long been a lieu de mémoire for survivors of internment and deportation, their families and friends, and others for whom it is a duty, a devoir, to remember what happened on that site during its short, tragic existence. Gour is a place in which the material, symbolic, and functional aspects of embodied memory coexist. It is a place in which memory and his history and memory co. It is a place in, in which history and memory interact. Can you elaborate upon this passage for us? Yes, I should say first, Gurs is located just just on the edge of of Shibaroa, uh, in the adjacent region of Bern. And I I first went there. I didn't know about Gurs until two thousand two, again because people no one talked about it, and it was only when I began this project that I learned about it. And I I went there on one November late afternoon and that description you read is really evocative of that first experience there and in the early part of the 2000s Gors was a forgotten place and it it was uh but it was the object of of an intense movement to resurrect the memory of Gors uh for listeners I mean Gors was one of the most notorious internment camps created in 1939 before the German occupation began. And it was created by the French for Spanish Republicans who were exiled in that part of France. And it was built by Spanish Basques who were interned there. And it it's its internees changed then to Jews with the the 
the beginning of the Vichy regime in 19, the summer of 1940. And it is a focus of my current research now. One of them uh, is the, the experiences of, of mainly foreign Jews who were interned there in between 1940 and 1943. And almost nearly 4,000 Jews were deported from Gours to Drancy, which was a transit camp outside Paris, and from there to Auschwitz. So it is very much a, a place in which history and memory uh, interact. And one of the things that's happened since I wrote this book is that the movement to remember and learn from Gors has been immense. And I, I, in fact, this year and last year served on an international committee of scholars on Gors and their, their money is being invested in a, a museum. And so it has, it's being transformed into a proper uh, memory space uh, in which that will be educative, educative, and uh, I, I hope it will, it, it will certainly emulate uh, other areas of, of, of uh, places of memory spaces that have been created since World War II in, in France and elsewhere. Um, and the, the people who were, the Jews in particular who were held there uh, were, as I said, mainly foreign, not French. And one of the surprising things that I'm discovering now in my research is that uh, some of them were able to escape with medical certificates. And so there was, things were not black and white in some of your earlier questions. I think you captured the sense of the gray areas involved in, in people's experiences during this period. And certainly the enemy was sometimes within and the enemy wasn't, wasn't always German. Sometimes the enemy was Vichy uh, authorities um, or your local neighbors. And so Jews, it was a terrible place to be. If you were a Jew and you were interned there, it was hard to get out. And if you didn't get out, your chances of survival were, were, were minimal. Um, and so my current work follows on from, from what I knew about the, the, the camp then. And it is, uh, it is um, a very tragic story. But in my current work, I'm also trying to tell the story not only of those who perished, but also those who survived. Can you tell us a, about the play, The Maquis of Shibirua? Who composed yes. it? What is that, the plot? Who are the main characters? What does it signify? That was a, a very interesting phenomenon. The The Maquis of Shibirua was written uh, as a form of popular theater. It, it is unique to the province of, of the Basque province of Shibirua. And it, the, the genre is called the pastoral. And so it is entirely uh, theater, popular theater that is performed uh, outside on a stage by a particular Basque community. And the every year a different village uh, hosts the, the pastoral. It's only performed twice and that's it. And during the course of my research, it was fascinating to discover that a a retired local school teacher had uh, written this play about the resistance. Maquis is a group of resistors. That's what it means in, in, in French. 
uh, maquisards are the are the actual resistors. The maquis is the group of resistors, and this local man uh, wanted to tell the story of resistance in Chiburoa during the German occupation, and the the play uh, is admittedly by the author seventy five percent made up and twenty five percent history. And what he was trying to do was to present the story of Shibiru and resistance as a unifying factor, which it wasn't uh, in reality. And so the play is about you know heroism and how the people of Shibiru came together to resist the Germans. And the genre has good and evil and the stage is set with the good side is is blue and the red side is the devil. And there's a little devil hanging on that side of the stage who whenever the Germans would come on stage, the devil would dance. Uh, and so it's, you know, it tries to make things very black and white, good and evil, good the good Basques and the evil Germans. And the play was performed as I was doing my research in that, that summer. And thousands of people came to see it. It must have been, I don't know, 3,000 people in the audience. And of course, there was a lot of discussion about it, and it was published in a little book form locally. And it it rekindled animosities between the two the two main rival resistance groups, who were at political opposite ends. One was uh, more cent- centrist, but included a lot of left wing socialists and communists, and the main opposition was very right wing. Uh, they followed different military leaders. Um, but here we are in 2004, and uh, the, this play just rekindled all these old bad feelings. And sometimes, Ari, people would react so strongly to it that, uh, for example, in the house in which I was living in, a, in one of the Basque towns near where it was performed, I had a copy of the play. And the woman, my the woman of my house, refused to touch the book because it. She said it that that wasn't how it happened, and she thought it was blasphemous. Uh, so that gives you some sense of the the divisiveness to which this play gave rise. And there were newspaper articles, there were interviews, and some of the former resistors who were then in their eighties, seventies, and eighties. They gave interviews to the regional press saying, I refuse to go see that play. It's a travesty, you know, and it caused a very interesting uh, furore uh, across the region. And the the playwright himself said, "I this was not my intention. My intention was to teach about this part of our past, but not to divide further our, our society, but it did. Uh, so it was a very, a very interesting uh, phenomenon and people's reaction to the play when they watched it. Uh, I should say that all the actors are local people. They're shepherds, farmers, dentists, you know, shopkeepers, and they practice. They rehearse for over the period of one year. So they they meet every Sunday and they practice all day. So it's a very big commitment, and communities are very proud of their productions. Um, and people in the audience when the play was performed. You know, everyone knew it was a very um, controversial topic and awaited it 
eagerly, but with some trepidation. But when the local people appeared on stage dressed as, as German soldiers, there was a really interesting and varied response among the audience members. Some elderly people started crying. Uh, some of the younger people laughed to see someone they knew dressed up as a Nazi soldier. Uh, and others were just fascinated and said, oh, you know, I my grandparents or my parents never talk about this time uh, of our history. So they welcomed the play. So it was just an interesting, uh, fortuitous moment for me to be there doing the kind of research I was doing. What forms of violence against women does your book document? What do they teach us about misogyny? What do they teach us about gender? No, that, uh, that, that's a very interesting question. And the as happened elsewhere in France, the most common form of popular justice and humiliation uh, against women was uh, female head shaving. And there were, uh, any, we don't know how many women had their head shaved from 20 to 100,000, we don't know. Uh, but it was a, a, a common occurrence in most parts of France at the liberation. And it was uh, instigated by, usually by, by members of the organized resistance and local people would, uh, would intercept women who were rumored or known to have had sexual relations or other dealings with the occupiers, the Germans, and they would take them into the main square of the community and and publicly a, a barber, a local barber would uh, would shave their heads and then they were paraded uh, in often in a, in a, in a truck uh, as, a, as a, another another layer of humiliation. And sometimes the women were uh, forced uh, to be half naked and and had the the swastika painted on their on their on their chest or their forehead. Um, and it was a very violent form of humiliation against women. And in the French Basque country, there was an extremely low incidence of this kind of public humiliation of women. Uh, and in the book, I relate that to local values and gender relations, uh, because in particularly in Chiboroa, there was a, a a recognized equality between men and women, and men were expected to respect women and women to ex respect men. And I I argue that the the low incidence of female head shaving is is linked to that, that uh, that I, they're only I, I can only count on one hand the number of times women's had their had their head shaved, uh, and in telling me about it in the in the 21st century, you know, people were not at all proud that this happened. One man thought it was funny. I mean, he said, oh, they got what they deserved. But the the, the usual, the basic uh, response was, that was a shameful thing to, to have done to these women. Um, and it, you know, that is, uh, it's a very public form of humiliation. And many of the women in other parts of France, you see in footage, there's black and white film footage of, of these head shavings. And sometimes the women concerned were just defiant and said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be ashamed of myself. I did what I did, and I'm, you, you can't shame me. Um, but in the Basque country, it did happen on, on, on a few occasions, and uh, 
it uh, and as I mentioned, I've mentioned in an earlier conversation with you, I knew two of the women who had it happen to them, and uh, they they uh, neither one of them felt that they had done anything wrong, and were remained defiant until their their last days that they they had they had been with German soldiers and that's what happened and that they were they were not about to be humiliated. <laughs> Who is Madame de Vincennes? You alluded to her earlier. Why is she noteworthy? And in, in regard to her, what can you tell us about the context of Hospitaleku in, in regard to Madame de Vincennes and her story? Yes, I mentioned her earlier on in this, in this talk. Uh, when I met her, she was in well into her 80s. Uh, she came from a little French Basque hamlet called Hospitaleku, which during the occupation was a stronghold of uh, one branch of the organized resistance, the, the, the ultra-conservative branch of the resistance called uh, the CFP. And local people uh, hid the members of that resistance group, the men who were in that resistance group. And the Germans got wind of it <clears throat> and in July of 1944, there was a massive raid on the hamlet of Hospitaleku. Some, you know, 800 German soldiers from uh, the a division of the Das Reich uh, moved into this hamlet of 90 people. And it was a, an awful, awful day. They rounded up all the villagers in the square. They burnt houses down. They shot uh, one man in mistaken identity. They shot livestock. They set things, the barns on fire, and they terrorized the local people, and deported. Uh, we deported some of them to concentration camps. And one of them, two women were deported in the group. The rest were were let free. But of those deported, Madame Davinsens and her mother were the only two women deported. They were deported to, to Ravensbrück, the Nazi concentration camp for women. And she, um, in talking to Madame Davansens in her last years, she she had been scheduled to talk uh, as at a commemorative event at the local high school to teach the younger generations about what happened in the 1940s. And she was... Uh, as the evening began, she she had her prepared talk uh, as a survivor of a, a Nazi concentration camp. And would, the other participants were men who'd been in the resistance and they were very, you know, wanting to tell their story of heroism. And it came her turn and she she started to speak and just faltered and could not. And she left she left the room unable to unable to emotionally to handle um a description of what she experienced and it was thanks to a local another local school teacher um, that I had the privilege to meet her and on this occasion normally I see people more than once but on this occasion it was uh, an entire afternoon and I spent the afternoon with her listening to her harrowing experiences of of this camp of her deportation and her her daily fear her daily um the the brutal beatings by the female 
guards, German guards. Uh, and she said that one of the most horrific things that happened was that the, the, the German guards would make her watch them beat up her mother every day. And she said that was the driving force behind her very strong in instinct for survival. She said, I, I didn't care about myself. I wanted to keep my mother alive. And that was her, her, the focus of all of her energies. And it was a work camp. It was, there were brutal conditions. And at the, um, at the liberation, when the camp was, was liberated, uh, she and her mother both weighed 85, 86 pounds. And they, they thought of course, that um, the father and husband of the two women had perished because he was also deported. So they had no, no, no notion of his fate. He'd been sent to, to um, Buchenwald. They didn't know that, but they thought he was dead. And when they were taken back to their little house in Ospitaleku in August of 19, no, it was the, the, the autumn of 1944, uh, they went to their into their house and who was there but the woman's husband and her madame davinson's father sitting by the fire and it was only then that they 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 knew what happened to him and he'd as he was arrested and taken away by the german soldiers he got as far as the basque coast where was being held there awaiting a cattle car to to a concentration camp and some German officer let him go when we never know why. So he never, he was never deported to a camp. Um, but in, in my afternoon with her, one was not only struck by the brutality of her experiences, but the primary, a primary reaction I had was of immense respect for her incredible dignity and to narrate this kind of experience is is emotionally very hard. It's hard to listen to, and it was certainly hard for her to talk about it. But her her dignity was something that I will always remember. And there is a photograph of her in my book, and uh, she had, as a result of her experience in that concentration camp, she had lost her hair, she'd lost her teeth, um, and she, at eighty, what she was eighty four, eighty five. She had immense dignity and she still had, she had a sense of humor and you think, oh, how, you know, how can you re relocate your sense of humor and all this? And at the end of a very harrowing, but moving afternoon with her, she turned to me and to the schoolmaster who had kindly introduced us and said, and now she said, Sandy, would you like to have a glass of port? Wow. And I said, oh, Madame Davin says it's only 4 p.m. And she looked at me and said with this this grin, she said, Sandy, do you think I give a damn if it's four o'clock? Wow. And so we were served little thimblefuls of share of port, of sweet port, and we toasted her and her, her late mother. Um, and so people like that are uh, such an honor to, to meet, I must say. On page 22, you write the following. As a social entity, the house constituted a private domain for its inhabitants. Whether open or closed, the front door marked a social and symbolic boundary between the people of the house and those who belonged elsewhere. Spatially, 
close neighbors constituted the most frequent and socially acceptable visitors in a rural Shiberoan house. Local etiquette required all visitors to remain on the threshold until a head of household invited them to enter the kitchen, the center of the most domestic sociability. Hospitality distinguished insiders from outsiders. Local custom obliged the female head of household to offer refreshments to anyone who entered the house, although a total stranger received limited hospitality or not at all. The woman of the house reserved the right to withdraw hospitality if a visitor failed to respect local codes of etiquette or offended the household in some other way. The ideal domestic group consisted of three generations, an elder couple, their successor and his or her spouse, and the unmarried children of both couples. Household members shared a moral obligation to work together for the common good of the house. Respect was a primary virtue cultivated and cherished in the family and an essential feature of being well brought up. Parents taught their children to respect their elders and to show special deference to their grandparents. Respect also figured prominently in gender relations. Men used the formal mode of address in Basque when speaking to women of any age. Husbands and wives also addressed each other formally and were expected to treat each other with courtesy. Public rumor branded a man who maltreated any female in his household as a badly brought up, disrespectful, and wicked. The same principle applied to a woman who mistreated a man in her household. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? Can you go into any more detail about what is being presented? Yes, and this really relates to your earlier question about forms of public humiliation uh, after the, the occupation ended and the 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 act of of female head shaving. And as I mentioned, uh, in in this particular Basque culture, uh, men and women are regarded as equal equal. That's what one says in Basque. And the the kind of uh, re respect required of both men and women uh, I outline in this in the passage you just read, um, and the so I, I I've already related it to the act the public humiliation of female head shaving and how most Chiburoan people uh, really were opposed to to that treatment of women regardless of what they'd done or were alleged to have done, um, and the excuse me i want to relate the passage to a different aspect of the german occupation and how again how people judged each other you can imagine given this these kinds of local rules of hospitality that you know your house the interior of your house is a private space it is only accepted insiders uh take a meal with you and you can imagine then how people responded to one another if that household offered hospitality to a German soldier. And so some of the most striking examples of, of the local rules being broken during the German occupation was the very rare example of a, a woman of the house and or her husband or another household member inviting German soldiers to their table. And 
when people were judged at the liberation for their wartime actions, this was something that came up. Um, you know, did did you entertain Germans in your home? And it was never a cause in the court for a a prison sentence, but sometimes it was it featured in a in a major way in in people's judgment of post-war post-war judgments of of behaviors. And I have come I came across a number of a couple of cases in which German officers who were based in Sostari, one of the communities I focus on, they regularly, every Friday, visited this particular farmhouse and were greeted by the female head of house and the male head of house, and they had lunch together. And they also dealt in the black market. But this was certainly, it went against all rules. You know, this is not just, just an outsider. This is a, a German officer. And so the... Um, the the act of commensality and the extension of hospitality to the enemy was certainly th th those those things were taken uh, very seriously in in the post-war period and often the people who engaged in that kind of behavior the local people left their communities after the war they didn't they didn't remain they left because they were ostracized even if they didn't end up in a court of justice for their wartime hospitality to germans they quite often simply left the area after the war. There's another quotation I'd be curious to ask you about from page 156. You write as follows. That power enabled Madame Etchart and Madame Uruti to compete with each other. They denounced each other to different authorities with, with whom each woman had reached an understanding. The shopkeeper and Lieutenant Hammer were like-minded in several respects. They both played with information and wrongdoing to achieve personal instrumental goals. And like Madame Uruti, they both tried to manipulate public opinion about themselves. As a power player, Madame Uruti was advantaged by her direct access to both Vichy and German authorities who, with the exception of Superintendent Ressel, were all playing a double game. Duclos was both a Vichy economic controller and a resistance officer. The mayor was an underground Gaullist serving Vichy in the, in the town hall, and Sass used his influence in the Gestapo to help Basque resistors and to protect the Urutis from denunciations. Can you tell us what is happening in this passage? And can you tell us about the individuals who are alluded to? Who is Madame Echart? Who is Madame Uruti? Who are the other individuals noted in this passage? Yes, this the 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 two women uh, whose names obviously I have changed. Uh, both came from the little market town I've mentioned before, Sustadi, which is one of the focuses of of the book. And Sustadi was very much divided before the Germans ever arrived by political and personal animosities uh, and the presence of the Germans, especially uh, Lieutenant Hammer, the presence of the German occupiers deepened those, di those divisions. And Madame Echart was, uh, uh, and both women were in their early thirties at the time the Germans arrived and they were already rivals and enemies. Uh, they hated each other. Uh, I never knew Madame Uruti, but I did know Madame Echart. 
uh, and uh, she was she was extremely mischievous, uh, and and also one of the one of the most uh, the the biggest denouncer that I've ever come across in that in that region, and she used denunciation to uh, to, to the German officer Hammer to get rid of her competitors, and so she was constantly denouncing Madame Ruti to the German officer Hammer, and he himself uh, he served there for over two years. So unlike other parts of France where Germans were very they moved around a lot, they rarely stayed in one place. But in, in the Basque region, the Germans posted to these borderland communities were there for, you know, two years or at least a year. And in Hammer's case, he spoke fluent English, French, Spanish, and he learned Basque. And he didn't always believe Madame Achart, much to her frustration. Uh, and sometimes he didn't act on her denunciations. <laughs> and he never arrested Madame Aruti, um, even though... He, he, he knew she was involved in the resistance. So there's an interesting power struggle between Madame Itchart and her friend, Lieutenant Hammer. They also uh, had a sexual relationship, I'm almost certain. Um, and the, the, the Madame Aruti, who was uh, played a, a, an important role in the, the Gala secret army as a resistor, she befriended the Gestapo officer, Sassi, and used her influence with him to help to persuade him to to release Basques who who were arrested by the Gestapo. So everyone was playing, a lot of people were playing a double game in this, and that was not uncommon. Uh, but the, this, this particular scenario was one of the most complicated ones. Um, and in the end, uh, Madame Echart, oh, she, she was just, no, she was outrageous in her behavior. And she would create rumors about herself and see how far they developed, you know, by the end of the week. And she thought it was funny. And sometimes there were things like that she'd been seen having sex under the arches in the, in the main plaza at 6 a.m. And uh, she, her parents were appalled. Her parents were very conservative Catholics and they were at one point made the police uh, how, make her go into house arrest so they could watch her, they could watch her. Her husband was a POW in Germany so she was on her own running her shop and she's rather out of control. Um, and as an aside to this, I have to tell you that I teach a course on war occupation and memory in the Basque country uh, here at UNR. And my students are get into this story about these two women who hated each other and their relations with German officers. And one of the, some of the most interesting role plays my students have done over time is play these characters and it's a way for them to as i say get inside the shoes of these people and try to you know and so they play act they we role play and one of the best performances of all was a a, a performance of um of this this scenario and the person the student who played madame Achart was a male marine uh who'd served in iraq and afghanistan and he'd said you know dr can i play madame Achart?" i said absolutely and he was so convincing in his, excuse me, bitchiness and his 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 mean spirited, you know, conniving uh, approach to what was going on around him. It was so convincing that the other students responded in a very magical way. To in, in it really was a it captured the the contradictions, the the animosity, the 
the you know the the double the double crossing that 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 took place um and in the end madame chart was uh well she had her head shaved at the liberation and then she was interned at gorse because after when the germans left gorse became an internment camp for german pow's and for suspected collaborators so she both she and lieutenant hammer her german officer friend ended up in gorse at the same time um she was then she faced the court of justice and was imprisoned for two years for her wartime treachery. And Lieutenant Hammer, by contrast, throughout the period in which the Court of Justice sat, he was a principal witness for the prosecution in the trials of suspected collaborators. So the former enemy becomes an insider in a very curious way as a, as a, as a, as a chief witness for the prosecution. And he was interrogated about his friend, Madame Achart in her trial, and he gave contradictory testimonies about her wartime behavior. Um, so kind of an interesting twist to a very messy situation. That's one thing that this book and my all my work on this period uh, reveals that life was really messy during during this period in 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 Basque history. What can you tell us about the town of Sustari? What took place there? What is its importance in the story you tell in this book? Can you share something about its history and society? The well, the the story of 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 the town of Sustari is, as I said, it was so deeply divided during the occupation and after. And when I mentioned earlier the lingering animosities into the twenty first century. Uh, it was this this particular market town that uh, in which people in by 2004 even were refusing to go into a certain shop because the previous owner had been a rival of their family or their household. So unlike the other three communities I've studied, the other the other communities are the Basque Mountain community in which I've done most of my field work, which I call Urdos, uh, and the little hamlet of Ospitaleku. And then a third Basque town, a Basque community uh, called Maoli. Uh, Sustari of all of them was the one that was most deeply torn apart by the presence of, of the Germans and people's local people's interactions with, with each other. And because uh, Sustari was so deeply divided in its citizenry, uh, that is why obviously why I changed the name of the community. That's not its real name. And it's also why the experiences of divisiveness there and animosity, it's also why I haven't, haven't sought to have the book published in French, because local people who can read English still think that there are enough people around who would know what community that is. And uh, so I'm, it's, not, it's not something I've pursued at, out of courtesy to the memory of those who were who were directly involved in 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 the treachery that happened? Um, On page one forty two, there's another question I'd be curious to ask you about. Um, you you write the following: local acts of denunciation breached the community's longstanding tradition of managing internal conflict on its own. Legitimate judgment belonged to those who had been born in Urdos and embraced its traditions and values. The boundaries of legitimate judgment about wrongdoing coincided with those of the moral community. 
no one in Urdos ever resorted to post-liberation vigilantism or violence against Garat after his acquittal. The Garat household never became the focus of popular justice for three main reasons. First, the informal court of neighborhood opinion never reached consensus about Pierre Garat's guilt or innocence. Second, the Garat house was a socio-physical space to which victims of Nazi barbarity belonged, violating the house with a Nazi swastika or miniature wooden coffin would have violated the memory of Tomas Garat and degraded Pierre Garat's survival of deportation to a Nazi concentration camp. Third, with the encouragement and guidance of their local priest, the Urdos people concentrated upon the restoration of community solidarity in the post-liberation world. The weekly ritual giving of blessed bread provided them with a vehicle for doing so. Can you say more about the passage here? Can you tell us about Urdos? And can you tell us about Thomas and Pierre Garat? Yes, I, I mentioned this case in passing earlier on in our in our discussion today that the um, when I discovered in the town hall the deaths of these two young men who, who were shepherds who acted as clandestine guides. They were both 19 years old. And one was Tomas Garat, and the other young man was his first neighbor. Uh, you mentioned earlier, too, that a, a very important uh, institution in the local rural society was that of first neighbors. First neighbor households were uh, closer than kin in, in many respects. Um, and so the what happened was the local person denounced the two young men, Tomas Garat and his neighbor, Mathieu, and they were arrested, deported, and perished in a Nazi concentration camp. Pierre Garat, the father, was accused by public opinion locally of having denounced his own son and his first neighbor. And rumor had it that, that Pierre had denounced his son because the two had quarreled over inheritance matters, didn't get along. And this, of course, was denied by Pierre. And the community itself is very tightly knit and uh, people, but people did not want to make a judgment. They, 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 they wanted to be united in, in mourning the loss of these two young men. Uh, Pierre Garat uh, was himself arrested by the Germans uh, because he was also active in the, in the local resistance movement. Uh, and he was deported to Buchenwald uh, along with his son and the first neighbor but he survived deportation and returned to the community. And as I say, his house was never targeted uh, in a, by a form of popular justice, such as the painting of a swastika on the door, or oftentimes uh, the moral community would uh, present a household that had collaborated with the Germans with a little wooden coffin that had a German bullet in it. That was an, another form of public humiliation, uh, if you like, and popular justice. Well, that never happened. And I need to explain in this case that uh, unlike the market town of Sestadi we just talked about, this Basque community had a very strong network of first neighbor relationships. And that was one imbued with a sense of uh, 
the need to help each other, to cooperate, to be respectful. You helped with each other's harvest, with pig killing, with the way of life, the local economy. Your first neighbors were always there to help you. And that institution had had fallen into disuse in the market town of Sestadi. So Sestadi didn't have that infrastructure that expected people to be kind to each other. And Urlos had it. And it was reinforced by the ritual giving of blessed bread. And I'll just explain briefly that this custom uh, was uh, that from one house to other in a, in a fixed rotation around the community of the commune of Urdos, every Sunday it would be one female head of household's obligation to uh, produce bread, have it be blessed by the priests so it had it had God's power in it. And then it would be shared with people at mass and then taken home and shared with the first neighbor, a particular first neighbor and the household. And so it was, and it was a gift of life. When the woman gave the gift of blessed bread to the female first neighbor, she said, here is my gift of life. So you had a life-giving ritual. And during the occupation uh, in Urdos, which was, it had German patrol base there, uh, the this incident, this local denunciation and the deportation of these two young Basque shepherds uh, caused, you can imagine, immense sorrow and anger. And it was very upsetting in this otherwise peaceable, <laughs> tightly knit community that this would happen. And the local priest uh, encouraged uh, the, the, the two households involved, the Garat household and the first neighbor, the women of the houses did not want to, it became their turn to give the blessed bread and they didn't want to do it because they were so torn apart by the rumors of denunciation and the loss of their men. And so other first neighbors proxied and the ritual continued. So in spite of the occupation, the ritual giving of blessed bread, which was for solidarity and life giving and was for the priest who really encouraged that to happen. And as time passed, um, those two women who both had lost a son and you know they still people still suspected Pierre Garat of having issued the denunciation those two women overcame that horrible agony and 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 sorrow and anger and they continued themselves to give and to receive blessed bread one from the other which i think is a testimony to the power of ritual and the power of healing in a in a small face-to-face -face community like that. So their response to local betrayal was so unlike what happened in, in the nearby market town of Sestari. Two very different reactions. And that's one of the, you know, one of the aims of this book was to, to illuminate the very different ways in which these little Basque communities responded to what happened to them during during the war. There's another quotation I'd be curious if you could opine on. Um, which is on page 98. You write as follows, the other members of the Blasquise's network had quite different experiences. 15 Gestapo and French miliciens arrested the Maul hoteliers, the Lopez, interrogated them in Bayaritz and eventually released them. The Gestapo never caught the railway worker who went into hiding following a tip that he had been denounced. The Germans did arrest his wife, a mall factory, a mall factory worker who went to jail. Her fate is unknown. Shortly after the 
Maula raids, the Germans arrested Roger D for buying black market coffee and released him only on condition that he would work solely for them. An unknown black citizen, an unknown citizen then denounced Roger D to the Germans for warning a Basque resistor about plans to ambush him. The Gestapo arrested Roger D a second time. On his release a few weeks later, this the young opportunist denounced several communist railway workers on the Basque coast, but he realized that the Gestapo no longer trusted him. Roger D then fled to Spain with one of his mistresses and ended up in a Casablanca jail after Allied intelligence networks identified and arrested him. As Allied police took Roger D to his cell, they passed a group of Basques who awaited their debriefing. The Blasquis brothers immediately recognized their denouncer. Can you explain what's going on in this passage for us and who the individuals alluded to are? Yes, again, uh, I think this passage uh, illustrates very well the extreme complexity of the times. You know, people do playing a double game, uh, trying to uh, profit from their contact with the Germans, you know, trying to make money because informers were paid often and usually by by the Germans, particularly the Gestapo. And in this particular uh, case, Roger D was not Basque. He was from elsewhere in France. And the the brothers he he denounced, uh, the Blasquise brothers, were were a very prominent uh, communist family in the town of Maule, which is not far from Sestari. And the Blasquise brothers were both uh, clandestine guides who regularly took people across the Pyrenees. Um, and I think one of the most extraordinary things about this experience is I, I knew one of the Blaskis brothers and had 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 the, the privilege of, of spending a lot of time with him over the course of a couple of years. And he described to me this extraordinary, well, he, you know, he described to me how he was denounced when the Gestapo came to the door and he and his brother escaped through a window um, and how they escaped arrest. And they, they knew that Roger D had denounced them. But he said one of the most extraordinary things was then when, as they were in Morocco, in Casablanca, in the post-war period, and he said, can you imagine our astonishment when as we're, we're going for our debriefing and we see this guy and it's Roger D. And he said that, you know, we immediately said, wait a minute, you know, we know who that guy is. He denounced us and 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 led to the arrest of a lot of people in our community. And it was only because of that chance. And chance plays a major role, Ari, in a lot of this. If you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, and in this case, how extraordinary that in uh, all the possible, what's the possibility of Roger D ever being identified by one of the Blasquise brothers in, in, in what is otherwise a very small world. Um, and... I had then subsequently found Roger D's um, trial dossier because he did he did go to the court of justice and was certainly someone who regularly played a double game for for monetary gain. Um, <clears throat> but the Blasky story also is linked with the the animosity in this Basque town between communists and conservative Catholic Basques. So again, we have a contrasting example of 
of divisiveness owing to economic and political reasons, social divisions as well. So this community was divided, deeply divided in, in terms of politics. And the Blasquis brothers were part of a, a, a little sub-community in Maoli. They, came, they had come, their, their parents had come from the Spanish Basque province of Navarre. And there was a Spanish speaking uh, sub-community in Maoli. And again, a different kind of animosity between the local French conservative Catholic Basques and this enclave of mainly left-wing uh, Spanish Basque, uh, people of Spanish Basque origin. So again, it's a, it's a different, this is where um, the, the turmoil relating to the Spanish Civil War and the presence of Republicans, Spanish Republicans in that part of France gave rise to, to increased uh, conflict in during the occupation and in its aftermath. But this is just an extraordinary coincidence that the Blasquis brothers would would identify their the man who who betrayed them. What is the relevance of the stories that you tell in this book to our own time in the year 2022? This is a, an, an important question, Ari, and it's one that I I always address when I teach my class on the German occupation of the French Basque country. Uh, because it is it is a snapshot of everyday experience in a time of foreign occupation, uh, and we see that in in our own world. Certainly, we see that in Ukraine. And when Ukraine when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, uh, I was teaching this course, and the students and I spent a lot of time talking about what they'd learned. Uh, from the experiences of these people in the small Basque province of Shiveroa and how to relate those terrible experiences uh, to what was going on in, in the Ukraine, in Ukraine. Um, and also, I think the moral side of we, about which we've talked a lot, uh, I think that's really important for younger generations to, to un try to understand the kinds of moral conflicts and the unexpected things that, that happen as a result of these experiences and to develop a, a, a deep respect for um, the people who heroically and in a dignified way uh, survive these, these experiences and that has much to teach us. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about your current research? What are you working on now? Would you like to illuminate us? Yes, thank you. Um, no, I, I should I should add that my the, the book that followed this one is called Living with the Enemy, and it's about uh, the trials of people accused of collaborating with the Germans during the occupation. So it, it it follows on from resistance and local community reactions to the cases of nine individuals who appeared uh, before the Court of Justice. And my current book project really is the the third in a trilogy, uh, having looked at local communities and resistance movements and then examples of, of collaborationism with the Germans. And the, my current project focuses on the experiences of French and foreign Jews in this part of Southwestern France. Uh, there was a, a there was and is a longstanding Sephardic Jewish community in the Basque coastal town of Bayonne. And so I am following their experiences. Again, it's a grassroots level study. Um, I also am writing about the experience of foreign Jews and French Jews held at Gurs 
and the Jewish community who were mainly Ashkenazi in the capital of the, the department in Po. Uh, and so it is, it, is a, it is a story of both survival and death, uh, of complicity, treachery, support, and, and solidarity. Uh, and so it will, I think, make an interesting uh, other set of narratives about the experiences at local level in, in this part of the French Basque Country and in Bound. So that's work in progress. I'm writing the book proposal now. And uh, so stay tuned. It'll give me, give me at least a year to finish the book. <laughs> thank you for your time. And thank you for all the sacrifice and attention that you invested in this book for the benefit of so many people. Well, thank you so much, Ari, for, for taking the time to listen to me and for your interest in my work. I, I greatly appreciate it. And I hope that, uh, that our session has given uh, people a chance to reflect on some of the main themes uh, and to learn from these experiences. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. To our listeners, I am Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Sandra Ott. She is Professor of Basque Studies at the Center for Basque Studies at the University of Nevada at Reno. We've been discussing her new book, War Judgment and Memory in the Basque Borderlands 1914 to 1945, published by University of Nevada Press 2008. Thank you.